21, and I want to read John 21 and verse number 21 once again. And uh, the trick on these days when maybe uh, you don't get as much rest as you might have wanted at night is to try to keep your mind and your tongue in sync. That can get out of whack and then you got problems. So John chapter 21, verse 21. Let's look at that again and see if we don't find a question there. Um, Peter, seeing him, saith to Jesus, Lord, and what shall this man do? We'll take a little time in today's message to ponder that question. Lord, and what shall this man do? And see what message God has in that for us. Dear Heavenly Father, we are so thankful that we have the privilege of assembly. Thank you that we have uh, the greatest freedoms in the world here in America, and we still have uh, freedom of assembly, freedom of speech, and freedom of religion. We pray, Lord, that you'll preserve these. We know that uh, the very people that talk about our society being a liberal society and a pluralistic society seem to be the very ones intent on wanting to muzzle the voices that disagree with them. And uh, we realize that danger exists, especially when men with blind eyes don't see, see what they're doing. And we pray, Father, that you would just preserve these freedoms, not only for the sake of God's people who are yet in, in this land, but uh, in order that uh, the work of the Lord might be supported and prospered around the world through missionary giving and missionary sending, and much of which still goes on in and from America today. So thank you for giving our, us our freedom more than anything, we're grateful for the fact that whom the Son makes free shall be free indeed, and to be set free from our sins and to know that we have redemption uh, because of the shed blood of the Lord Jesus Christ is a great blessing to us today. Help us every time we contemplate the Lord's Day to be renewed in a spirit of praise and worship, to thank you for what you've done, to thank you for who you are, and to ask you to come and squeeze our hearts that we might uh, be encouraged to live for you in this new and coming week. Now, Lord, we are grateful once again that you know each of us as individuals. We're thankful for that, Lord, because you know just what we need here today. It's just only our prayer that you'll take the message and use it, Lord, even work above and beyond any thoughts that I've had for today or maybe even the words that I would speak and bring just the application, just, just the thoughts to each listener that will help, that will bless, that will encourage and uh, we'll give you the thanks for all that you do for us. And always, Lord, if we have anybody who doesn't know the Lord Jesus as personal Savior, uh, we always want to pray that they would find in this place a warm and winsome uh, opportunity to ex accept Jesus Christ as personal Savior and be born again. And so we'll make these prayers now in Jesus' holy and wonderful name. Amen. Well, this is the last of the questions that we are going to be considering in the Gospels. So we worked our way through Matthew. We worked our way through some that weren't in Matthew, but were wise to take up in Mark. Same thing with Luke. Luke has a lot of material, as you know, that's, uh, that's different. And John more so. So when we come to John, we've had a number of questions that have been interesting to look at. Our series, as you recall, is, has been called They Asked Him This. And we are looking at questions that people ask Jesus. Not the questions that Jesus asked people, but the questions that people ask Jesus. And so this is a, a, a really interesting one today. This one is asked by no less a person than the first pope. <laughs> You're supposed to laugh. It was Peter, of course, and that's, that's kind of the joke because uh, Peter, Peter kind of finds himself not doing so hot on 
on uh, being infallible here in this chapter. So it's kind of interesting to uh, poke a little fun and, and, and have a little chuckle. But this is Peter. And uh, Peter asks a question that I think the more we meditate on this, the more uh, we probably would be agreed that the question is unusual. It's unexpected. Um, to get a little stronger, I find it really to be unseemly and a bit inappropriate. And so we can always learn from mistakes, right? And we make a ton of them, so please don't get me wrong when I point this out about Peter because I've told you before, I never have been a preacher to want to poke it at other people and talk about, you know, the standard joke about Peter is, is that he opens his mouth so that he can exchange feet. And I've never really thought that was very funny because I figure for every mistake Peter makes, I've made five. And if I get to where Peter is, I'll, I'll, I'll be real happy. And I don't think that that's going to happen. So I think we always approach these Bible figures with humility. We realize that we're cut out of the same bolt of cloth. We have a fallen nature just as they did. And uh, so when these things are recorded, of course, they're recorded for our learning, for our admonition, uh, that we through patience and comfort of the scriptures might have hope. And it is kind of encouraging to see that we don't make all the mistakes. Some people make mistakes also, and we can learn from them. And uh, it is a good, powerful way to learn sometimes. So let's talk about this. Peter's question about John to the Lord. What shall this man do? Now, maybe I should say we do have one more in this series because we're going to find that there is a question in Acts chapter 1, and we'll be looking at that next week. And that'll actually be the end of this series. I believe then maybe 38 messages will have comprised this series. Um, there is another one in Acts, but uh, I wouldn't expect you to remember this. But back last May, so a little bit less than a year ago, um, we jumped forward and looked at that question of Saul or Paul, uh, Lord, what wilt thou have me to do the week before uh, the church was scheduled to have a week of revival meetings, and I thought that that was a, an appropriate topic for us then. So we'll be ending on one from the book of Acts next week, and then that'll be the last um, for this particular series. But this one today is the last one from the Gospel of John and the last one from the Gospels. What I want to talk to you today is about the subject of focus. I think that what this question that Peter asks reveals that Various distractions had worked in his life and produced a wrong focus. Jesus is quick to correct that, and so that's also helpful for us to see the things that kind of got Peter distracted. Peter seems to be thinking about John when he really needs to be thinking about something else. And uh, so focus is really kind of the subject and how critical maintaining the right focus really is for us um, in all of life, really but uh, particularly in our Christian endeavor. So this is a really simple development today. I want to talk about the wrong focus, first of all, and we're going to be able to see this from the text. I think we'll be able to find at least three things that were part of Peter's experience here that got him kind of going in the wrong direction and thinking the wrong thoughts. But keep in mind, this will not be a complete list. There are many things that can distract us, many, many things that can distract us. I'm just mentioning three this morning because I think these are the three that we can legitimately tie to the text. If you were going to treat this topically, you could go all over the Bible and find other examples and other things, and you could probably make quite a list of things that the devil uses to distract people. But in this particular, particular scenario, I want you to think about this. Let's set the stage a little bit before I introduce uh, the first one. What do you think that Jesus is really trying to do here? 
Earlier in the chapter, there's a scene where the disciples have gone fishing, and we'll, we'll come back and talk about that a little bit in just a few moments. But now that uh, exchange is over with. John tells us this was now the third time that Jesus appeared uh, after his resurrection to the disciples, and that story is over with. And now the Lord particularly turns his attention to one man, and that man is Peter. And everybody is familiar with the fact that the Lord asks three questions. He seems to ask the same question three times. And I think pretty much everyone here has heard sermons on that before. That's not so much what the sermon is today. Uh, most of you know that uh, those three questions were meant to remind Peter of the three denials, that that failure was in Peter's life. And beloved, you know something? We can sweep things under the carpet, but God doesn't. And when distance creeps into our relationship with the Lord through our disappointing him, our failing him, which Peter certainly did in this case. And you recall when we read about it back in the Gospels, it says he went out and wept bitterly. But there needs to come a time and place when Peter makes this right with God. And that hasn't taken place to our knowledge. Yet the Lord has already commissioned Peter. He's already told Peter, on this rock I will build my church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. Obviously, Peter is going to be a significant and key figure in church history. Uh, God has a plan for his life. God wants to use him. But something's got to happen first. This has got to be resolved. This distance that's crept in, this problem that's crept in, it needs to be resolved. And sometimes we're kind of slow to do that, right? We, we just kind of sometimes push things off to the side and figure everything will be all right in our relationships with other people when we've done something that we really shouldn't have done. We've spoken an unkind word. We've, we've maybe done something that bothered them or offended them. And we should have a sensitive spirit and go to them. And sometimes if you develop a sensitive spirit like this, you find people saying, oh, it didn't bother me at all. But they appreciate the fact that you were sensitive and concerned. If that's true with people, it's just as true, if not more so, with the Lord. We should be ready to come to the Lord and make things right. And I just think Peter was having a little trouble with that. And so this is really what the Lord wants to do. He wants to get Peter's attention through these questions. And so you notice that when he first asks the question, he asks him, do you love me more than these? And we talked about this once before because that's a question of Jesus, and I think we, we probably had a message on that. But there is some thought about this. What is he talking about? Is he talking more than these? Is he talking about the great catch of fish? I suppose it's legitimate to talk that way, but I kind of think maybe the stronger idea is Peter had made quite a boast. Do you remember this? In fact, maybe it would be good to see it in his own words. If we would go back to Matthew um, and look at this for a moment. Uh, Matthew chapter 26. Let's have a look and see exactly what Peter said. When Jesus said that, uh, it, well, we're going to read this because Jesus introduces a, a prophecy um, there in the garden with these men as he's telling them about what's going to happen. Matthew 26, 31 says, Then Jesus saith unto them, All ye shall be offended because of me this night. For it is written, I will smite the shepherd, and the sheep of the flock shall be scattered abroad. But after I am risen again, I will go before you into Galilee. Now, what was Peter's response to this? Peter's response in verse 31 answered and said unto him, Though all men, and of course, obviously the nearer reference with all men is not so much all men in the world, but the other, these other guys might do that. <laughs> you know, these other guys might do that. But he says, Yet will not, 
yet I will never be offended. Well, of course, Peter was not only among the group that dispersed. Peter came back, followed John to the, to the palace of the high priest, but was not only a, a part of that group, but went on to deny the Lord just as the Lord tried desperately to warn him and get his attention. So the fact that the first question is introduced, lovest thou me more than these, and probably the significant reference there is to the others because Peter made that boast, and it's designed to really get his attention. It's designed to really focus on the fact that Peter has something that needs to be fixed. You know what? It not only needs to be fixed with the Lord Jesus, but it needed to be fixed with those other guys too because I'm sure they took umbrage at what he said on that occasion. He, he, was, he was thinking of himself in an over-important and kind of a self-important way. But these th- three things, so, so this is what this is all about when, when the Lord is, 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 is dealing with Peter on this occasion. He wants to restore Peter. He wants to put him on the path of renewed service. We certainly find that when you get to the end of the questions and Peter is grieved, um, we certainly find in verse number 19, look what the Lord says. This saying spake he by which death he should glorify God. And when he has spoken this, he saith unto him, what's that? Follow me. Well, isn't this the commission that he gave him right from the very beginning? Come after me, follow after me, and I will make you to be fishers of men, he told them. Down in verse 22, he repeats it. It says here again, Jesus saith unto them, if I will that he tarry till I come, what is that to thee? Follow thou me. This is what he wants to do. He wants to restore him, but these distractions have entered into the picture. What distractions? Well, there's three that I said I wanted to mention. First of all, I'm going to phrase them this way. First of all, a lack of patience. See, this is where I think it may pay us to go back a little bit to the story in the earlier part of the chapter, where in the first several verses we read that verse number one, after these things, Jesus showed himself again to the disciples at the Sea of Tiberias, and on this wise showed he himself. There were together Simon Peter and Thomas called Didymus and Nathanael of Cana and Galilee and the sons of Zebedee. Who's that? James and John, right? Important to know that, James and John, and two other of his disciples. And John doesn't see fit to name them, but what does Peter come up with? Simon Peter saith unto him, I go a-fishing. They say unto him, we also go with thee, that was a colossal success, wasn't it? No, it was a colossal failure. It says, that night they caught nothing. Nothing more discouraging than that. They, to, 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 to fish all night and to come up empty-handed. And I think at best, you have a situation, it's really hard not to see restlessness creeping into this. It's really hard to see Peter having a struggle with waiting. Do you ever have a struggle with waiting? I think that must be one of the hardest things sometimes we have to do in the Christian experience is wait. And there are lots of reasons that you have to wait. Sometimes you just have to wait because God's not at the place yet where he's ready to reveal what it is he wants you to do. And you have to wait and be patient. And we get restless. Many times we get restless. We, we, we have the same kind of a, an impatient spirit, restless spirit that Peter did. And... In this particular case, that restlessness led to poor leadership because when Peter suggested to the others, and I mentioned again that two of them were the sons of Zebedee. Well, originally, these men were fishermen. At least Peter and Andrew and James and John were, right? In fact, when we read in the the Gospel according to Mark, they were not only in the fishing business, but they were partners. He had the two brothers, Peter and Andrew. Andrew's not named here. 
Whether he's one of the two, we don't know that weren't named. He's not mentioned here. But the sons of Zebedee are James and John. These men are fishermen, so now they're back in the environs of the Sea of Galilee. They've got time on their hands. The Holy Spirit hasn't come yet. Jesus has clearly told them, tarry ye in Jerusalem until ye be endued with power from on high. Now, understandably, he had also instructed them to meet with him in Galilee. But somehow, it's just one of those things where here they are in Galilee. The Holy Spirit hasn't come yet. They've got time on their hands. They're restless. And it's just very difficult sometimes to wait on the Lord. But this is what Peter says. I go a fishing. And then it was poor leadership because the others went right along with him. But you know what, folks? And I alluded to this earlier. Jesus had long since informed Peter as to what his calling. They were fishermen. But Peter had long since been commissioned to leave that. And he had, which to... To much to his credit, when we read about this in Mark chapter 1, verse 17 and 18, Jesus said unto him, Come ye after me, or follow after me, and I will make you to become fishers of men. And straightway they forsook their nets and followed him. Well, there's nothing wrong with fishing. But it just depends on exactly how you understand this, and what this is kind of indicative of is in going on in Peter's heart. I don't really think he's thinking of returning to the fishing business. I just think that he's restless. And who knows, maybe a, a, maybe a contributing factor to this whole thing is the fact that he's not right with God. He knows he's not right with God. This hasn't been fixed yet. And so it all kind of is a cascading kind of a thing that builds up, and it's not a good move. It exhibits a lack of patience. You know, years ago, and, and I know we have a couple of teachers here, but I heard someone say, you know what the law of, first law of good teaching is? You know what that is? Repetition. You know what the second law of good teaching is? Repetition. You know what the third law of good teaching is? Repetition. Well, there's a little takeoff on that from Hudson Taylor. Hudson Taylor said there are three things that are indispensable requirements for a missionary. Number one is patience. Number two is patience. Number three is patience. If you stop and think about this, folks, I mean, you know, we get itchy when we've got a day or something like this on our hands. But think about mission work and think of how much time you have to invest in going to a foreign culture, learning a foreign language, building a relationship with those people. And you can read missionary story after missionary story of, of, of ones who have gone and it's taken quite some time before they had their first convert and they've doubted and they've, they've, they've wondered and they've just been uncertain about the thing. It's a very difficult thing sometimes to wait on the Lord to be ready to pour out his blessing. But if you go back now, which none of us really has the benefit of at the time, except to go back and look at some of these other situations and see that God is always vindicated, go back now and look at the big picture. Well, Hudson Taylor left England for China in 1853. And it was, I mean, at this point, China was kind of just becoming or coming on to the uh, awareness of the Christian, uh, breaking into the consciousness and the awareness of the Christian West. And so Hudson Taylor was, was a pioneer in this, but 
after serving the Lord for 50 years in China, Hudson Taylor had not only started the, the China Inland Mission, but Taylor had inspired thousands of people to consider going to China. And I think it's all very interesting because, you know, you and I have lost a lot of this perspective now because it seems like all we've known for the last ever how many years has been communist China. But, you know, the seeds of the gospel were sown there, and there are Christian people there. And it doesn't hurt to pray for some of those people because they don't have an easy place to be. But Peter, I think, is, is distracted. See, he's distracted because of his lack of patience. And it's a very difficult thing not to remain focused on the Lord and be willing to wait on him to show us what it is he wants us to do. Secondly, and I've sort of already alluded to this, is I see a lack of humility. And I see that that's what's coming out here as Jesus is dealing with Peter in verses 13 through 18 with these three questions. Because... He's already the one who said that he's not going to do that, and yet he did that, just as the others did that. And I, I think, well, you know, Peter doesn't seem to, it's like he's tone deaf. It's like it takes till the third question before he finally it says he's grieved. Now, I know you've heard sermons on this before. I think I've mentioned this, but I think it never, you know, the, the law of the first law of good teaching is repetition especially if people have heard things that, that are not the right rendition. So in Sunday school, we heard about fact-checking what you hear from the pulpit. So you can go fact-check this all you want, but I'm telling you this is the correct rendition of it. See, the, the standard sermon that we hear on this is, is that, you know, people talk about the different words for love, and they talk about agape love being the highest love, and then they talk about phileo-style love, which is the love of affection and love of friends, and the standard rendition on this is that when uh, Peter finally, the Lord finally got Peter's attention, the third time he came up to the right word. But that's not how it worked. How it worked is when Peter, when Jesus first started questioning Peter, he asked him, do you love me? And used the higher word, the agape word. Peter responded with the other word. The second time, same thing. Jesus asked with the higher word, Simon, son of Jonas, do you love me with the agape love? Peter answered with the filial word. The third time, the one who changed was Jesus. Jesus actually fronted him at that point with the question, do you even have that? That's what happens. It's not that Peter came up, it's that Jesus went down. Peter Jesus was actually questioning in an effort to get the attention of someone who was tone deaf and wasn't figuring out what this was really all about and was thinking about John and not thinking about the colossal failure that was in his own life. Think about that. When we become possessed with a feeling of self-importance, somehow we have a way of dis dismissing and dispensing the things that are wrong in our lives because we think we're above it or something like that. I don't know, but... That's what's going on here. And, and so it takes this third time for Jesus to say, well, do you even have the phileo love? Now, by the way, I should maybe also clarify, there's, there's really, um, we talk about a higher form of love and a lower form of love, and it, that's one way you could say it. It's not altogether accurate because both words are good words. Um, the agape love tends to be the highest form of love. It, 
we, we, we talk about it that way because that's God's love for the world. That's where you're able to put aside your emotions and always make the decision that's in the best interest of the person you're dealing with. And it's a decision to do that because your emotions tell you to do something opposite. Somebody's unkind to you, your emotions don't tell you to smile at them and, and be nice in return, right? But the filial love tends to operate more on that level. It's not that it's wrong, it's just that it tends to operate more on that level. So it's not so much that the filial love is a second-class love. It's the love of friends, and it should be there. We should have be kindly affection. The Bible tells us that, right? We should be kindly affection one to another. We should have compassion and regard for one another. We should be fond of each other. And I understand that you always have people you feel closer to than others, but that, that should be a part of it. But boy, when Jesus comes right down there and says, you know what? You've been saying twice now that you have that. Do you even have that? That's what broke him. That's what got his attention. Finally, something broke through this spirit of self-importance that Peter had. I don't know if I ever told you the story before or not, um, but years ago, people can, many people here can remember this. You know, the, the, the lead CBS News broadcaster was Walter Cronkite, so, and everybody remembers how he signed off, and that's the way it is, and he'd give the date. And, of course, that's been ages since he's been on the air, you know. But there's a kind of an interesting story that is kind of one you tell on yourself about self-importance where Cronkite and his wife were out sailing one day and they were sailing down the, Connecticut, the Mystic River in Connecticut and they, they got to a place in the river, there were some turns in the river and it was known that there were various times when the water uh, in the channel there through those turns would be low. And so they were passing through that, and about that time there was another boat that came by going faster, and there were some younger people in it, and they were, they were doing like this, waving their arms. And so Walter Cronkite looked back and smiled and waved, and his wife looked at him and said, do you know what they were saying? He said, well, I assume they were saying, uh, why, hello, Walter. She said, no, they were shouting, low water, low water. And, you know, such are the pitfalls of self-importance and egotism. He just assumed. And it seemed like Peter just completely ignored everything that the Lord had said to him in terms of the, the warning that he gave. These guys were trying to give the, the warning about low water, and Jesus tried to give the warning about what was going to happen that night, and Peter was just off somewhere else. As you'd think, rather than be interested exclusively about John, if, he, if anything, he would be interested in this cryptic saying when Jesus is talking to him. You, he didn't even ask a question about this. If you think about that, that's kind of startling too, that he says in verse 18, the final verse, he says, Verily, verily, I say unto thee, when thou wast young, Thou girdest thyself, and walkest whither thou wouldest. But when thou shalt be old, thou shalt stretch forth thy hands, and another shall gird thee, and carry thee whither thou wouldest not. Man, if somebody said something like that to me, I think my very, my very next question wouldn't have been, what's this guy going to do? I think my next question would have been, what are you talking about? I mean, he just gets done spelling out what's going to happen to Peter in the future, and it has kind of a a serious overtone with it. 
He says, there are going to be people who come along later in life and carry you where you don't want to go. And then John is the one who adds the, the comment later that he, Jesus uh, spoke this saying, verse number 19, signifying by what death he should glorify God. And when he had said this, he saith unto him, follow me. He doesn't even bother to ask about that. So I see these distractions. I see, first of all, the, the restlessness or the lack of patience. I see also the uh, lack of humility that it's, he's just tone deaf. It's not even getting through to him until the very end. And even then, he doesn't think to ask, oh, really? What do you mean? He says, oh, what about him? And so the third thing I think that we see is a lack of contentment. And uh, when you look at the question and think about how Peter words it, of course, what happens is Jesus is dealing with Peter. And when this uh, set of three questions is over with in verse number 18, then you notice right away in verse 19, what does it say? Then Peter turning about, verse 20, seeth the disciple whom Jesus loved. So he's distracted. He's distracted by John. He's not thinking about what Jesus just said about him. He's not thinking about the grief that just entered his heart when he realized he'd failed the Lord so miserably and he'd been gripped with this, this self-importance that had led him to make such an extravagant statement that they might all do it, but he never would. And it, it, it doesn't seem to have much effect. And whatever effect it does have, it's overcome as he turns around and he looks and he sees John. Now I want you to think about this for a moment because the way he asks the question in verse 21. So then it says he asks the question, Peter saith to Jesus, Lord, and what shall this man do? Why did he pick, pick on John? I think I can suggest an answer. And I'm going to give you several lines of support for this idea. But I tend to think that it shows that there was just a little bit of a sense of rivalry with these guys. And it tended to focus on John from Peter. Now, let's look at some lines of thought that might support this line of inquiry. Well, first of all, we know that James and John were ambitious, right? How do we know that? Well, let's just look at a couple of scriptures. Let's go back to Matthew chapter 20, verse 20. Nothing wrong with sanctified ambition, but I think we all know that you can get the wrong kind and you can get too much of it. And so this is kind of interesting. Matthew 20, 20 says... Then came to him the mother of Zebedee's children. That's why it's important to know who this is. This is uh, James and John. It's their mother. And with her sons, worshiping him, desiring a certain thing from him, and said unto him, Wilt thou, what wilt thou? She, he said to her, she said unto him, Grant that these my two sons may sit, the one on thy right hand and the other on the left, in thy kingdom. Oh, nothing much. Just the two most prominent positions in the kingdom. <laughs> and so turn to Mark 10 because, uh, so we understand that scripture doesn't contradict scripture. So sometimes when we find verses that 
how did one thing says one thing, one thing, thing seems to say something else. All we need to do is really try to figure out, okay, how do these two fit together because they don't contradict each other. And that's what happens when you get to Mark's account of this because Mark uh, has the question coming from them, not their mother. Mark 10, 37 um, well, let's read verse 35 for the context. And James and John, the sons of Zebedee, come unto him, saying, Master, we would that thou wouldest do for us whatsoever we shall desire. And he said unto them, What ye would ye that I should do for you? They said unto him, Grant unto us that we may sit one on thy right hand and the other on thy left hand in thy glory. So what's going on? Well, probably what's going on is that they, it's their question. It's they're the ones who sort of at, are agitating for the question to be asked. And like a lot of people, they sort of put somebody else up to it because they're a little ashamed to ask it themselves. And so mamas always love their kids and always want to see their kids advance the most. And so mama asks the question, probably the best way to put this together. Even so, we understand what was going on here, that there was a little bit of that self-promotion. Now, something else I said, why did he focus on John? So there's already this in the background, but then if you look in the context right where we are, John was the one who enjoyed the intimacy with Jesus, which is described in verse 20. Look in verse 20 of John 21. Then Peter, turning about, seeth the disciple whom Jesus loved. By the way, he, you know, it's not without uh, something we should notice that that's the descriptive term, the disciple whom Jesus loved. But it goes on to say, which also leaned on his breast at supper and said, Lord, which is he that betrayeth thee? Well, not only is Jesus or John the one who's in the closest proximity, he has the nearest spot to Jesus. But if you go back and look at John's account earlier, Peter had to kind of whisper across the way to get him to ask the question. Peter was the one who asked him to ask this question. Who is it that's going to be the betrayer? You find that in John 13, verses 23 through 25. So you think about how all this is working around in the fallen heart. And it's a little easier than, I think, to understand how Peter could kind of be, be tempted by this a little bit. Lord, and what shall this man do? What's, what's he going to do? I think there's something else you can talk about. I think there's a good chance that there was some rivalry because I think it's very probable that James and John were Jesus' cousins. So now you have a family matter. And we don't have time to go into all that this morning except that when you begin to compare the references of these women, you'll find that in a couple of the places it refers to the mother of Zebedee's children, but in the other references, it refers to Salome. And Salome was apparently that woman. When she's called the mother of Zebedee's children, it, her name is Salome. And when you compare those verses, it works out that if she's Mary's sister, if she's the Virgin Mary's sister, what does that make James and John to Jesus? Earthly cousins. Right? Did I get it right? earthly cousins. And 
we might be able to prove that, but that's, that's really the line of thinking that most Bible students feel is the appropriate one when you study the passages where you have the actual name Salome and where you have the other expression, the mother of Zebedee's children. Like I said, I'm not going to take time to run us through those verses this morning. So it's not that difficult to see where Peter kind of, this kind of was in the back of his mind a little bit. But it does kind of boil down to a little bit of a lack of contentment because you see what's important is not what other people do. It's what God assigns us to do. But it's easy to be tempted by jealousy. It's always easy to look at the other guy and think that he's got a little bit more of the limelight or he's getting a little bit more of the attention or he's getting a little bit more of the praise. And, you know, it's easy sometimes in church work to, to begin to feel that way. You know, I I just do this thing that nobody ever sees. Well, without mentioning any names, I'm going to tell you something that I always said uh, to be true about that line of thinking. It's still true. The two most important people in the church are your secretary and the janitor. And you just thought about it. Think about that for a minute. If the preacher's got to do what the secretary does, if the preacher's got to do the janitor job, how in the world are you supposed to do all these other things that you're supposed to do? If you've got good people who keep that stuff off you so that you can give yourself to prayer in the ministry of the word, it makes you a whole lot less distracted and a whole lot more effective. So to me, I always had high esteem for my secretaries, and I always had high esteem for the people that cleaned the church because I realized what their worth was. To me, their worth was great. But it's always easy to kind of get that spirit and think, well, you know, that guy's always up there. He's the one everybody talks about. He's, but I just, oh, I, don't, I do these jobs in the church and no one ever knows. Well, you know what, folks, the honest truth is we ought to do a better job of letting those people how much, know how much we appreciate them and what they mean to us. That's the honest truth. I think most churches are guilty of that. But at the same point, we got to keep on reminding ourselves that we do what we do for the Lord. And if no one ever thanks us, we know that he sees what we do and he takes notice of it. And you can't give so much as a cup of cold water in his name, but what he notices that. But it's really easy to begin to feel that way. A lack of contentment. I really like a story that I read some time ago. It's a story about Patsy Claremont, I don't, some of you might know that name. She's a, 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 a lady speaker and writer. But she talks about an occasion when she was riding an airplane one time. She was going on an engagement on a trip. And she, you know, you're always curious when you get on the airplane, especially if you're by yourself, okay, who, who am I going to be sitting by? So as she approached the place where her seat was, she was looking and noticed that uh, there was a young man who there who was going to be the person sitting in the seat next to her. And it didn't take long for her to think to herself, there's something different about this guy. And what it was, was she spoke to him and he referred back to her as ma'am. That caught her attention. Immediately three thoughts went through her mind. She said, either he thinks I'm ancient or he was raised down south or he's in the service. She opted for the third, and she said, uh, are you in the service? And he said, yes, ma'am, I am. She said, what branch? He said, Marines. 
Hey, Marine, she said, where are you coming from? He said, Operation Desert Storm, ma'am. She said, no kidding. She said, Desert Storm, how long were you there? He said, a year and a half. And then his face lit up. He said, but I'm on my way home now. My family will be meeting me at the airport. And she said back to him, she said, you know, I could only imagine how many times over there in Afghanistan you thought about your family and home and were wishing that you could be back there and not in the Middle East. He said, oh, no, ma'am. He said, we were taught never to think of what might never be but to be fully available right where we were. And you know, I think about that, I think there's a huge message in that story. Who knows what God has for us in the future? It may be big, it may not be. It may be small. But we have something to do now. And that's what the Lord finds important for us. So let's just take a couple of moments at the end here to talk about the right focus because it doesn't take Jesus long to get this thing sorted out. Jesus quickly sets this matter right. He says to, to Peter in verse number 22, If I will that he tarry till I come, what is that to thee? What business, this is the, the more blunt way to say it, that's not your business. Your business is to follow me. It's not your business what I call John to do. That's my business. Folks, it is encouraging to know that we are not judged by what others do or don't do. We're judged by faithfulness to what he gives us to do. And all you have to do is go back to a place like Matthew 25. I want to just read a couple of verses. But you know the parable of the talents. One guy got five, one guy got two, one guy got one. So if we pick the story up, if you turned and we pick the story up there in verse 14, it says, The kingdom of heaven is a man traveling into a far country who called his own servants and delivered unto them his goods. And unto the one he gave five talents to another two, according to his several ability, and straightway he took his journey. And then he that had received the five talents went and traded and with the same and made with them five other talents. Likewise, he that received the two, he gained other two. And it says, but he that received one went and digged in the earth and hid his Lord's money. Then look, here's the reckoning. Here's the judgment seat of Christ. After a long time, the Lord of those servants cometh and reckoneth with them. So he that received the five talents came and brought other five talents, saying, Lord, thou deliverest unto me five talents. Behold, I have gained beside them five talents. He said unto him, Well done, thou good and faithful servant. Thou hast been faithful over a few things. I will make thee ruler over many things. Enter thou into the joy of thy Lord. Now remember, the guy that got five got five because of their individual ability. The Lord knows what that is. He makes the sovereign choice. But in the end, the reward doesn't change. Look at this in verse number 22. He also that received the two talents came and said, Lord, thou deliverest unto me two talents. Behold, I have gained two other talents beside them. His Lord said unto him, well done, good and faithful servant. Thou hast been faithful over a few things. I will make thee rule over many things. Enter thou in the joy of thy Lord. He says the very same words. 
He doesn't say to the guy that got five and earned five more, oh, you're going to have 20 cities. He doesn't say to the guy that got two and earned two more, well, you did, you did well too. Two, you get 10 cities. He didn't say that. He gave the exact same response. And you know why that is? It is because we're not rewarded on the basis of being famous. We're rewarded on the basis of being faithful. So it's true, you know, there are a lot of people that people know more about than they know about you. Just the way it is. I mean, you know, it used to be years ago, people, when I was in school, there were a lot of people who loved the sword of the Lord and read that magazine. And, you know, you, you look at that thing or any other periodical like that, you think, wow, you know, got, got these big name preachers, you know, Lee Robertson and Jack Hiles and all these names that everybody seemed to be so taken with. And you think, you know, I'll never be anything like that. One call, not called to be. Your pathway is the pathway God gives you, not the pathway he gives someone else. You're held accountable to what it is he's given to you. And this is what he's trying to get this in to Peter's mind because you'll notice he says to him in the first case at the end of verse 19, follow me. But at the end of verse 21, he adds a word. And the King James picks this up. Follow thou me. If you look at that in the original, it's actually, there's an, there's an emphasis there. And the King James picks that right up. It's not just the imperative, but there's an emphasis on you. You! This is what you need to get through your thick skull. The right focus is my will for you, my pathway for you, what it is I want you to do. You know, I was thinking about big and small, famous and not famous. And how that's troublesome to us sometimes. And I got to thinking about David when he started out. And he was, I don't know, if they were, if they were puppy dogs, we'd say he was the runt. Right? Because he was the last one in line. He had all those brothers. You know how that makes you feel when you're the, like that. I mean, there weren't that many years apart with our two boys. But I tell you, the youngest boy, I think he got a, a little bit of that idea that I'm, I'm not going to just do the same things they did. <laughs> you know, they're all individuals and they all want to make their own way. But I can imagine what it would be to, like to have seven or so brothers and be the last guy. And here three of them went off to the army. Big shots. Big shots. Out there with Saul and Goliath and the Philistines and all that stuff. And then one day Jesse calls David in and says, Hey, I got some care packages. I want you to go to the army and take these care packages to your three brothers. Well, you know the story of how he got there and those guys were self-important too, but the none, of them were, none of them were bold enough to face Goliath. And so, you know, David on that occasion got an unfair rebuke. His brother Eliab came to him and said, With whom hast thou left those few sheep in the wilderness? Remember that? I know thy pride and the naughtiness of thine heart. How ridiculous. He was just a big shot. He was a little bit like Peter on this occasion. He, he was possessed with a, a spirit of self-importance. But David was faithful in the little, the few sheep. 
And when you're faithful in the little, then God often reads in that something of character, and he's willing to give you more. He that is faithful in least is faithful also in that which is much. It was David who became the shepherd of Israel. I want to close by saying this. It's scary to me. Is it scary to you? It's scary to me how much I see of me in Peter. It's scary how easy it is, how many pitfalls there are to become distracted, to not keep the main thing the main thing. And these three that were in Peter's life may not be in ours, but they may, or there may be other things. But the thing that we have to keep bringing ourselves back to is the personal note that I showed you there in verse number 22. You, you follow me. Don't worry about John. That's my business. What he does is between him and me. What you do is between him and me. That's what you're responsible for. <coughs> Folks, I don't know about you, but that's sobering to me because the more I think about that, I got my hands full. Just staying straight and doing what God wants me to do.